Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. Well, this week a new species of early human has been described, Australopithecus sediba, and it looks like it's a key member of the family as it links to the more archaic, small-brained Australopithecine with the more modern species of Homo. Sediba was unearthed two years ago at a somewhat aptly named site of Cradle of Humankind World Heritage Site, and its discoverer is Professor Lee Berger from the University of Witzwatersrand. Bit of a mouthful. Two Sediba have been looked at by Berger and an international team of 60 researchers. The adult female and juvenile male are actually quite complete for such early specimens. They allowed Berger and his team to study their pelvis shape, spine, ankle and skulls. And what's interesting is that they have a mixture of old and new traits. Like modern humans, they had quite an upright stance, small teeth, an advanced pelvis and relatively long legs. They were, however, just over four foot tall in adulthood and had quite small brains. The researchers have used a combination of dating techniques to get as accurate as possible an age on these creatures, including uranium-lead isotopes and paleomagnetism. From this, they believe that Sediba would have lived about 1.95 million years ago, and it's this period when the climate record changes dramatically and Africa becomes more arid. So perhaps the development of Sediba and later humans owes something to these climate changes. What does this mean in terms of where we come from, though, Dinah? Where does this fit into the grand scheme of things where we pop up? Well, it's the first, well, best example of the Homo species branching off from Australopithecines, which is this archaic sort of small thing. Um, you've probably heard of Lucy, haven't you? Um, and it's it's an example. It's well, it is kind of a missing link, really, of how our species links to theirs. Now, it appears to have found active volcanoes on Venus. Now, despite Venus being very similar to the Earth in size and general composition, its crust appears to be very different. Earth has got a crust made up of moving plates which collide form mountains and have volcanoes around the edges. Venus has definitely had some form of volcanism in the past, but there's no plates. Um, they know this because there's far too few impact craters on the surface, and so something must have got rid of them. So it's basically recreating or resurfacing itself too yeah, quickly. There appears to be some resurfacing events, but up till now there's been no evidence of volcanism happening at the moment so they have no idea whether that resurfacing is immediate happening all over the place at once or it's been happening slowly over a long period but finding this out is very difficult because it's got incredibly thick atmosphere far far thicker than earth it's full of sulfuric acid it's almost opaque in all frequencies but suzanne smerker um, and colleagues have been studying Venus using an instrument on the ESA Venus Express mission, which can look through narrow infrared transmission windows in Venus's atmosphere. They've particularly been studying structures that look like the hot spots on Earth. These are places like Hawaii, which are associated with an upwelling in the mantle, so you've got hot mantle rocks moving upwards. They haven't seen flowing lava, but they have seen rocks which are very good at emitting infrared, possibly rocks like basalt on Earth. On many planets, this wouldn't tell you very much, because if basalt could have been erupted millions of years ago and you wouldn't be able to tell. But because Venus's atmosphere is so reactive, what happens is this basalt tends to form minerals like calcite and quartz, um, which are much worse at emitting infrared. So they don't know exactly how long this would take, but the experiments they've done in the lab indicate it's a region of a few years. Um, and so it looks like Venus might be the first rocky planet other than Earth found with active volcanism going on at the moment. And it's 
So is the reason that it is completely smooth and craterless because it's resurfacing itself, because it's so volcanically active, it's just spewing lava out all the time, which is covering the surface? Is that the point you're making? Um, They definitely think there have been events which have done that at some point in the past. They don't know whether they're still going on or whether they all finished millions of years ago, whether they're ever going to happen again. And it's really important to understand this sort of thing because Venus is in many ways the Earth's twin, although it's very different to the Earth. And if they can understand why it's different, you'll understand the Earth a lot better. I was talking to a geologist, James Jackson, at um, Cambridge University about Venus just the other day, actually, and he was saying that one of the reasons why Venus doesn't have plate tectonics, like the Earth does with plates moving around on the surface, is because it's so hot, 450 degrees C on the sunny side of Venus, that this means that there's no water as liquid, and everyone has has come to realise by studying this on Earth that you need liquid water as the sort of lubricant to enable plate tectonics to work, and it just can't happen on Venus, and therefore it doesn't have Venus quakes but it can nonetheless have volcanoes, which is fascinating. Now, one other thing that caught my eye this week, and I think this is terrific, to think that what we're eating is actually ending up as genetic material inside some of the bugs in our own guts. Scientists have discovered that bacteria inside us could pick up bits of DNA from the food we eat and incorporate it into their own genetic material in order to enable them to eat more exotic types of food, like, for example... Sushi and seaweed. Uh, This is a paper in Nature. It's by Gervin Michael, who's at the uh, University of Victoria in British Columbia. And he and his colleagues were actually studying a marine organism, a bacterium. It's actually called Zabelia galactanivorans. And this bacterium lives on seaweed, and it can break down sugars that seaweeds make, called porphyrans. These are big sort of starch-like molecules with lots of sugars stuck together. And these bacteria, this group have discovered, make enzymes called porphyrinases that can break down these particular sugar molecules and they get some energy out of it. So they thought when they discovered these enzymes and discovered the genes for them, they'd have a look in the International Genetic Database and see if it had ever been reported before. And they did look, and they did find it had been reported before, but not where anyone was expecting, because sequences similar turned up in the guts of people from Japan, but nowhere else. They even looked in the intestinal washings in bacteria from people in America and they couldn't find any trace of these genes in the bacteria there, but they were in people from Japan. And, of course, the link is that people in Japan eat enormous amounts of seaweed. About 14.5 grams per person per day of seaweed gets consumed in Japan, much of it as the wrapping around sushi, for example. And what they think has happened is that these bacteria, these marine bacteria, have been eaten alongside the seaweed, They've got into the intestine and the native bacteria naturally in the guts of the Japanese people have grabbed the genetic material from this particular marine organism because it knows how to break down this seaweed and they have used that genetic know-how and it is enabling the bacteria in their own guts to break down this unusual human food source. And there's a wonderful commentary. One of the people who's actually written on this, Stanford uh, scientist Justin Sonnenberg, who's a microbiologist in California, and he actually wrote a beautiful commentary on this, and he points out it's a bit like you going to a restaurant and being served a really tough steak. And you go over to the cutlery drawer and you pick up a really sharp knife, a steak knife, rather than the butter knife they've given you. And this enables you to hack off big chunks of meat from the steak. So it makes a food source accessible to you that you wouldn't do otherwise. And he finishes his piece by saying, Next time you take a bite of an unfamiliar food, think about the microbiological inhabitants that you may also be ingesting and the possibility that you'll be providing one of your 10 trillion closest friends with a new set of utensils. How about that?
Do bacteria do this often, uh, gaining genetic material from things they eat or they're living near? Well, the point they're making is that we just don't know. No one's realised that, that a common human form of bacterium could pick up genetic know-how from other environmental organisms and assimilate it because it, it would have been very hard to know otherwise because we're all sharing the same sort of world and the same sort of food. But when you separate land and sea and, and then bring things from the sea into the human diet, like seaweed, a bit unusual, there's an opportunity to discover this, and that's, why they've, that's what they've found. Fantastic. Now, scientists have been using a very everyday item to improve composite materials, T-shirts. Now, one of the hottest areas of material science is the development of composite materials that combine the useful features of two or more pure materials. It's often useful to mix these materials as thoroughly as possible, but this can get difficult as you get smaller because particles tend to stick together rather than mixing well. Now, Xin Yong Tao and colleagues have come up with an interesting solution, the humble cotton T-shirt. Cotton is particularly well-suited to this purpose because each cotton fibre is covered with tiny hairs. These give it a huge surface area which gives cotton its remarkable ability to absorb water. These hairs are beautifully distributed and don't aggregate and don't stick together. So if you can convert them into the material you want to distribute, they're ideal. Um, they first, so what they did was they carbonised the T-shirt, they um, basically drove off all the water, the hydrogen and the oxygen, just leaving carbon, surrounded it with boron and heated it up. The carbon then reacts with the boron to form boron carbide, and because it's in little wires, then little nanowires. Now, boron carbide is the third hardest material known. It's often used in body armour because um, it's very, very hard. It can sort of break up the bullet as it hits you. Um, and it's got other useful properties, like it's very good at absorbing neutrons and it has an incredibly good temperature resistance. Now, these wires can then be mixed with a polymer and they, they showed that it made the polymer significantly stronger. So you've literally got a bulletproof vest. It's a bulletproof T-shirt, potentially. I think practically it's not going to work because the way the bulletproof vests work is by having quite a big lump of the stuff which actually just shatters the bullet, whereas a little wire isn't going to work like that, I'm afraid. So what are the applications then? So if you wanted to make a neutron absorber, so if you want to build a, um, something around a nuclear reactor, you could do it really well. Um, they also found that it was very good at absorbing ultraviolet light, so it could be a good way of protecting a material from sunlight which damages it and things I like that. I did hear it soaks up UV, so it would be quite a handy sort of way of preventing you from getting sunburn, although it's probably being a bit extreme. Thank you very much, Dave. Well, also in the news this week, researchers in California have shown how a new drug, which they call IRGD, can help to fight tumours, and that's done by boosting levels of chemotherapy agents that can get inside the cancer. And to explain more how they've done this, we're joined now by Professor Erki Ruslati, who is from the Stanford Burnham Institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's with us now. Hello, Erki. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Um, wonderful paper. I enjoyed reading it very much. Tell us, if you could, first of all, though, what is the problem with getting chemotherapy drugs inside cancers in the first place? Yeah, t tumours are blood vessels, and anything that is introduced into the circulation will then get into the tumour, and that includes anti-cancer drugs. The problem is that tumours have a high in internal pressure, and uh, the flow of the tissue fluid is actually from the tumour to uh, the surrounding tissue, which means that it is difficult for drugs to penetrate into tumours, and they only get a couple of cell diameters from the blood vessels, which leaves some of the tumor cells with a suboptimal amount of drug and that contributes to recurrence and, and also the uh, resistance that uh, tumors usually uh, develop. And so, of course, physicians try to compensate by increasing the concentration of the drug in the bloodstream, but then that, of course, has a knock-on effect for healthy tissue because it begins to generate side effects. That is correct. So one can only go that far. 
using that approach. So if you've got a way of carrying chemicals selectively into tumours far further and far more easily, in other words, at lower concentrations in the blood than previously, you could potentially hit the tumour much harder where it hurts, leaving healthy tissue spared and therefore minimise the side effects. That is right, and that is what we are able to do with IRGD. How does IRGD work? What is it and what does it do? IRGD is a peptide. Uh, We originally found it uh, using screening of huge peptide libraries in live mice. It is possible to make libraries of billions of peptides, and and we started screening them in vivo for their ability to go to tumors. And one of the peptides we found turned out to be quite special. It has uh, the RGD sequence, that's arginine glycine aspartic acid, which uh, my laboratory found 25 years ago as a key sequence for cell attachment. Now, the receptors for this sequence are upregulated, present at high concentrations in the blood vessels of tumors, but not in normal tissues. So the RGD sequence makes the peptide concentrate in tumor blood vessels. It then gets cleaved there by an enzyme, which takes away most of the RGD activity, but exposes another receptor binding sequence that now transfers the peptide to another receptor called neuropilin-1. And when a peptide binds to neuropilin-1, it activates a transport system, and that transport system can take the anti-cancer drugs deep into the tumour. And so doing some some simple experiments to work out how much better it is if you give this agent to the tumour alongside some kind of anti-cancer agent. How much higher concentrations of anti-cancer drugs can you get in the tumours when you do that? Well, it depends on uh, the time when we look at the uh, drug concentration. If we look at it fairly soon after a single injection, we can get 7 to 40 times more of the drug into the tumour. Then if the treatment is long-term, say several weeks, then the difference becomes somewhat smaller but it persists even after uh, weeks of treatment. And is this with the IRGD protein linked chemically to the drug or with the drug just given separately and at the same time into the bloodstream so the two molecules are washing round together and the IRGD drills a hole in the tumour and the drug then goes in? We originally would couple our homing peptides to the drug and that makes them more effective. But we then discovered, and that's the the message of this newest paper, that um, we didn't have to couple the two together. We could just uh, give them at the same time. And as you say, what happens is that the peptide activates this transport pathway, and it's a bulk transport pathway uh, such that it takes in and through the tumor anything that is around when the peptide is there and has activated the system. And lastly, you obviously showed this, as you said, in mice. Will this work in men? So we've got something that works in mice and men, to make a horrible pun. Yeah, well, so far we know that we can grow human tumours in mice and and the system works. We have not um, tested uh, anything uh, in in humans yet uh, that requires a lot more preliminary work. We're just tooling up to uh, start studies. 
Well, we wish you luck and thank you very much for joining us. A wonderful study. If you'd like to read it, it's actually published in the Journal of Science this week. And also there's more details about that on our website and all of the other stories that Diana and Dave have covered at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Listener.